welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. All right, welcome back to The Near Memo. We think this is episode 56, but we're not entirely sure. Could also be 55. We'll have Could to be get 55. next week with the correct <laughs> yes. number. We've lost count at this point. We've done a lot of them, and they're always fun, and... Uh, the point of this is to talk about search, social, and commerce with a sort of local angle on all of that. And I'm here with Mike and David as always. Um, and, it, you know, it's always difficult for us to choose three topics or three-ish topics to talk about because there's so many interesting things going on. But I'm going to start off today with a lawsuit that was filed in the Northern District of California, federal court, by um, a Florida-based company that is called the lime lime green or something yeah lime fresh lime. Lime. yeah no fresh lime is uh is jb's oh, yeah. company that's the sas company. um now i'm blanking on the name anyway it's a small restaurant chain that is based in florida and they're suing google for the online ordering button that was placed on uh, local business profiles in approximately 2019 but tested prior to that uh, but sort of massively rolled out in 2019. And then um, subsequently, Google gave restaurants the ability to opt out and gave them a little bit of additional control over who the delivery companies were. But you click the click the button, go to a landing page, choose a delivery company, DoorDash, uh, Postmates, one of the big national companies, and then they fulfill the order from the local restaurant. And um, a lot of people were upset by this. A lot of sort of local agencies that worked on behalf of restaurants, a lot of restaurants themselves were up in arms, feeling that Google was sort of improperly diverting traffic from what would otherwise go directly to them to these national delivery companies, and the restaurants have to pay like a 30% commission. Um, and so there was this sort of sense that Google was pulling a kind of bait and switch, which is the language used. Uh, in the in the complaint, and the complaint alleges a whole bunch of claims, um, uh, in, you know, deception. Um, there's some, uh, you know, appropriation of trade names and goodwill. There's a bunch of claims in the lawsuit, and they're asking for compensatory damages, which is money hypothetically lost because of this behavior, and punitive damages, which are used in situations of egregious conduct conduct to punish the defendant if they're found to be liable. So that would be, you know, three, there's a, there would be a formula, but they're asking for, for a, a, a multiple of the, of the compensatory damages. So it's, it's, it raises some interesting questions about what Google is allowed to do with business identities and business names. Um, but there's just a broader ethical issue, which, which um, we've talked about informally in the past about Google doing things for local businesses or to local businesses or with local business information without getting them to opt in or asking permission. What Google did was create an opt out after an outcry. So thoughts, thoughts on that? Sort of the way Google develops in local is they work with a singular or two very large companies. They integrate that data feed into the business profile and they don't create an interface to it through the dashboard or any other means. They just see if it works, right? If it works, they keep it. If it doesn't, they keep it and then build an interface to it. So they have this sort of backwards way and it, it ends up putting a great burden, at least this did, on 
people on the ground who had to deal with DoorDash or Grubhub, whoever was building the fake websites and the fake, you know, listings of their food stuff. And it puts a burden on their business that they weren't anticipating or that they didn't and they didn't agree to because this is how Google does it. So it's sort of a self-centered development technology. I don't know if it's designed to well, cheat businesses, but it ends up. I, I'm sure Google painful. would never say that we were intending to cheat businesses. I'm sure Google is focused on the user experience and thought this is going to be great. Two, two things. They think it's going to be great for users because it creates convenience. And it's also going to be good for them as a kind of, it's, you know, sort of, they're, they're doing a lot of transaction based things. And this is part of that. And so, you know, it's, it, they think that they're, they're creating a lot of value all the way around. The, the parties that are not considered in this calculus are the, the local restaurants. You know, it's interesting when Google works with, you know, they just rolled out uh, this uh, vehicle ads um, in beta, I guess. And they had some case studies in their blog post. And those are all big companies, CarMax and, and a couple of others, big auto dealers. And they, they, they invite them to participate. And it's this voluntary thing. We'd like you to be a beta tester in this new program. But they don't do that to local businesses. I mean, there may be examples where they have, but by and large, they don't do that. And so they got themselves into trouble. And this is a, this is a would-be class action lawsuit. So if the class is certified, it could be every restaurant, hypothetically, in 2019, and uh, where Google put an order button on their profile could be thousands and thousands and thousands of restaurants. Yeah, I would just add, uh, Greg, to piggyback on, on what you were saying earlier. I think, um, unfortunately, it's it's a you know longstanding pattern, as Mike said, not just to think about scale, but also, I think, to have product managers at Google who simply do not consider the impact of their product decisions on local businesses at all. Um, and so even though I don't find the... Um, I don't find the motivation to streamline the user experience objectionable in any way. The fact that nobody in the room, you know, thought to raise their hand and say, hey, how's, you know, how's, uh, you know, the mom and pop pizza parlor, you know, going to take this? Maybe we should at least talk to a couple of them before, you know, before rolling this kind of thing out. So I think that that's, that's been a sort of systemic uh, issue with Google in local for as long as all three of us have, have kind of been involved. Um, the second thing is, I think this this highlights the uh, the persistent uh, mantra that that Mike and I have been banging the drum for for years, which is that your Google business profile is not your Google business profile; it is Google's, um, and that they will do what they want to with it. So, um, to the extent, I mean, I, I realize you know, search is a is is the dominant channel for a lot of businesses with respect to customer acquisition, but to the extent you can build a multi pronged customer acquisition um, set of channels, I think that that's to your advantage so that you're not beholden to a single decision that a 25-year-old product manager at Google makes. I Absolutely. Go ahead, Mike. Did you? Yeah. I have one final comment. Yeah, I want ringside seats and popcorn. <laughs> I, I, you know, I would, I would, I would say that Google probably did make a conscious decision not to make this an opt-in uh, program, just in the same way that everything is opt-out. Because when once you ask people to opt-in, the numbers are going to be really small. They're going to be really tiny. They would have had to do a lot of education, a lot of outreach. It would have been expensive. They would have gotten limited or, you know, very limited participation. And um, but it wouldn't, they have, could it wouldn't have flown. They could have gone about it in the same way that they just did the, the auto ads um, example that you just mentioned, Greg. They could have started by going to 
you know, a dozen some chains, national chains, some national with chains, ten thousand yeah. to twenty thousand locations, and said, "Hey, we're going to roll this pilot out. Would you like to participate?" And that would have been a perfectly scalable test across probably a million locations and just talking to maybe a dozen partners. So, and they could have also simultaneously released the feature so that you could right. remove the That's button right. if you wanted to. That that, they, that, that was nine. That was like science. nine months later. Um, you know that the opt out came. So, okay, well, so moving on now to, David, an item that is sort of at a high level similar in terms of the legal uh, <laughs> concepts involved um, that, you, that you observed for, from the Morning Blue, Blue right. Newsletter having to do with contextual targeting and the objections of, of some publishers to what's going on. It's, so a strange, it's a bit of a strange segue, but uh, I did find the item interesting. No, it's not. It's perfectly <laughs> logical and rational. Uh, so, so I, this was a confusing uh, article from Morning Brew to me, not because it was poorly written, but because I didn't necessarily understand the objection that these publishers, so that the, the story goes that um, these publishers are up in arms that contextual ad, ad targeting networks are inappropriately scraping their content and allowing for ad targeting options that are outside the bounds of their uh, agreements with with some of these platforms, and uh, for the reason it caught my attention was was primarily that it's it really does signal the awareness now on both the buyer side as well as the publisher side that we are moving into a post cookie world where contextual ads are probably going to be the the most effective form of display advertising moving forward and. The publishers being up in arms probably reflects the fact that they want a bigger seat at the table or a more prominent seat at the table or more seats at the table to determine this new future. But in this specific case, I didn't really understand the, the grounds for their objection, given that they can always just opt out of working with these uh, demand side platforms uh, that, that are serving the ads on their properties. The, the objection was that, oh, well, they're, they're, doing, they're trying to do deals with brands directly and that these guys are undercutting them by um, allowing for additional audience targeting based on their their content. Um, and so I just, it was, an, again, a somewhat confusing article to me to understand the, the grounds for, uh, for protest, but I think another signal in a range of many signals, we talked about Google's topics uh, model probably about a month ago on this podcast, just to, just to show the importance of context moving forward as the best remaining sort of ad targeting option in a post cookie world. Well, I, I can I can support the the statement that you made that a lot of publishers are hoping that they can establish direct relationships with advertisers again. I mean that has to be at a level of scale, sufficient scale. But I think that that's they see the demise of cookies as an opportunity to go back to the way it was originally, where they sold ads directly to particular advertisers, and so any the persistence of any of these networks as middlemen, dis, you know, disintermediating them um, is is something that they don't like. Right. And I think that the, the sites with large enough scale, I mean, I think uh, McClatchy was mentioned as one of the one of the sites, uh, local media consortium, um, as well as right. groups representing BBC, McClatchy and others. I mean, I do think that when you get to that level or Gannett, my former, former employer, 
Um, when you get to that level, there probably is enough scale there if you're talking about you know millions of eyeballs uh, a week across a wide range of topics to do deals directly. So I think that there's probably going to be a middle ground sort of marketplace uh, concept that may not be as favorable to the, the, the tech platforms as it is to the publishers. Okay. And, and speaking of, yes. <laughs> All right. My dog is making her presence known again. In full agreement. Yes. All right. Well, we're moving on to Mike, who did some digging into SEC documents filed by Yelp and found some interesting developments that we've talked about a little bit before in the past, but in more detail. So, Mike, why don't you sort of explain what you discovered? So, I have been tracking Yelp traffic, uh, unique visitors for years, although I had been tracking their June numbers and they stopped publishing June numbers. And so I had to wait for the 10K to see if they republished numbers, which they did in the 10K. And I'm always struck when I listen to these presentations and look at the PowerPoint, how sale, I mean, I know you said, Greg, that all of these presentations, financial presentations are sales pitches, but Yelp particularly so. They always lead with the top level numbers. They never, tell you any nuance behind the numbers. And they, it always just like when you go to, you listen to Apple's presentations, it seems more factual to me than Yelp's, which seems so much more salesy. Some of it has to do with culture, but uh, maybe they're all like this. Anyways, their presentation was totally fluff and the 10K, you know, brought out some interesting stuff. So one, impressive numbers from Yelp, uh, really good recovery during COVID, given that they lost a lot of restaurant business. <laughs> <clears throat> on their ad side, they made it up with additional products and in service ads and changing out their ad selling model. They got rid of a lot of their yellow page like sales people and sales department hammering small business. I mean, it's like 50% smaller, isn't it? Something like that. It's pretty, it's pretty substantial. Yeah, they, they laid off a lot, 2000 people. I mean, it was a big number, and yet they were still able, by focusing on large multi-locations and self-serve, they were able to come in with numbers that, that were very good. And it, this is a significant change because it also removed some of the annoyances that small businesses had with their sales technique, which were very, very hard sell, really deceptive uh, types of sales. So so it was a most, from a financial point of view, it was a large, a good story of recovery and of structural changes to their business. But when you dig into their numbers, what you see is that their unique visitors by, you know, have basically peaked in 2017. They dropped in 2019. They recovered to roughly 2017 levels in 2019. So they've been sort of, let, they were flat pre-pandemic and then just plummeted during the pandemic. And, and, and you're seeing tremendous drop in their desktop traffic you're seeing sort of static, no growth in their app, and they have been haranguing people for years to use their app, but are seeing growth in their mobile traffic, which I assume is coming from Google, but also likely coming from Apple and the increased use of Apple. And But they still haven't demonstrated to me that they're even gonna be able to get back to previous levels. And so while they have redone their business model, and they brought out new products and made it easier to sell them and more pride, more value. Ultimately, it depends on users and they're, it's not clear to me that they're gonna be able to grow that. The other interesting number is the growth in their review volume, 
which has been declining uh, pretty much straight line since 2014, dropped a huge amount in 2020, 2021. But, but they always talk about the top level, 244 million reviews, literally almost 100 million of those are old. And so, you know, one of their key values is current long form reviews. And it's not clear to me that, the, that the, they're going to be able to replace that. That was the thing to me that was the so, most striking about your your article, which is on the in the analysis section of our our uh, our site, uh, Yelp's Hidden Headwinds, is is the idea that almost half of their reviews are for, are are stale, older than 2015. I mean, that's kind of amazing to me. It's 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 tied undoubtedly to the decline in in usage, in user growth. Yes, but but uh, um, just real quickly. Um, to throw this in there, I think in the most recent bright, bright local uh, consumer review survey, they said that you know a substantial majority of people won't look at a review that's older than a year, um, but most people want reviews of that are as recent as three months or even more recent than that. So the the focus is on really recent reviews, and this is a big big problem, I think. Yeah. Right. So without reviews, there's no way to reach right. out to and, growth. And the fact Go that ahead, Yelp makes it so difficult to leave a review or for a first time review anyway to show up. Um, and the fact that they expect these war and peace length reviews. And those are the, the reviews that they, you know, sort of stake their their business reputation on. Uh, I think it's going to be much harder for them to increase their review growth. Um you know, absent a radical shift in their stance on businesses soliciting reviews from their customers. I think you know, we're finally we're finally in an era where businesses do understand the, the importance of reviews. They probably understand the importance of Yelp reviews in particular, maybe not to the same extent that, you know, Mike uh, demonstrated with his um, with his case study of Yelp reviews a few years ago. But uh, I think we're finally at the point where it's like now is the time to, to make this shift uh, to sustain their the value of their business on the consumer side and potentially finally start to bring SMBs back into the fold who had largely abandoned Yelp due to the aggressive sales tactics of the past. Well, go ahead, Mike. To their credit, their user interface coming from search has dramatically improved. And the other day when I did it, I think I searched for a specific business and then went to the Yelp listing. They actually asked me in a short form way whether I'd done business with them and wanted mm -hmm. to recommend them in an up-down fashion prior to the asking me to leave a review. So they are moving towards a simpler review model, but Yelp is pretty intransient. In well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you describe that sort of updated user experience because I, you know, I mean, I've talked about this before. Years ago, um, I had a conversation with Luther Lowe, who's now their policy guy in DC, but before that was in a more operational job. And I suggested to him that, you know, that Yelp solicit reviews on behalf of its customers, you know, especially with these booking and uh, request for quote kinds of scenarios where they know that there's a, there's an engagement. And I think if, I think this this sort of forces them to do more of that kind of thing. If they don't explicitly embrace that, they have to do more review solicitation on behalf of their uh, on behalf of their uh, their 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 businesses. I'm th I think they're they're compelled to do it. Um, you also pointed out, Mike, that um, you know one of the things that stands in their way, one of the friction points, is that new reviewers don't see their reviews published on Yelp because Yelp doesn't have enough trust in these people that aren't that don't have a history. So you write a single review, and Yelp filters it out, 
and then it creates a disincentive to participate in the future. Very true. <laughs> so, I mean, another another final sort of point was that um, you know there the Yelp uh, earlier when they when whenever they did that um, deal with Uber, I guess it was last week, might have been Monday, where the the Uber, Uber Explore. Explore tab is yeah is is powered by Yelp. That's that's a bid for more user user engagement. Uh, they and and then Chad Richard, who's that who's one of their SVPs, uh, in the blog post that was announcing that talked about how they're distributing through their API. They're distributing Yelp to InDash infotainment systems. Um, usage is another question, but you know they're they're going to continue. Not to me. I don't think anybody in their right mind uses an InDash infotainment system. Because they're always so crappy. Well, they're, some are know, less, like, some are I less crappy suffered, than others. I suppose, but I've yet to see one that works. And I've tried a number of them in rental cars and my own cars. And I consistently, in fact, in the last car, I insisted that we, which didn't, we bought a used car and it didn't have CarPlay. I, I went out and bought a, a new head to, so that I could get CarPlay because the interface and the, mm-hmm. it was so bad, so frustrating that I, I replaced it. And I can't imagine, I don't know, Toyota's terrible, Honda's terrible. Maybe there are some good ones out there. I don't know who. So that distribution channel. Yeah, it's not very promising, my, let's just say. Bottom line, <laughs> not very promising, right? At least from my experience. All right. So um, I think we've come to the, the rapidly, quickly, we've come to the end of another episode. That, that kind of flew by for me. Um, and as always, we uh, appreciate your attention and uh, thank you for joining. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe to Near Media, our newsletter, and um, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.